shit. Make him laugh, make him laugh. Bet you all tired of hearing the constant blather. In the end, you just want to know that laughing matters. From entrepreneurs to Fortune 500, humor makes the world go round. You didn't know? It's a fit for a throw, like a roll with spaghetti. To keep your culture light when times are heavy. So sit back and relax as you raise the bar. When it all comes down to the ha, ha, ha. Yeah, make him laugh, make him laugh, huh? You make him laugh, make him laugh. Welcome, everyone, to another episode of the Thrilling Laughing Matters podcast, which is unlike any other you'll ever hear. We explore the power of humor and laughter in a world that sorely lacks both. And we talk to num- numerous leaders from all walks of life on how they use humor to take the edge off. I am your host, as always, your co-host, Paul Merchant, Senior Vice President at Peppercom. I'm joined, as always, by the unshakable CEO of Peppercom, Steve Cody. Hello, Steve, and good morning to you. Good morning to you, Paul. I prefer um, unflappable, if mm, you don't okay. mind. I would sounds, prefer, sounds... Yeah, I would prefer unflappable. But how are things in Raleigh-Durham today? Uh, they're great. They're unflappable as well. Uh, still <laughs> still warm. I don't think we're going to get rid of uh, summer until uh, December, which, by the way, we did see uh, Christmas decorations in Costco over the weekend, believe it or not. Nice. It's That's never all, too yeah. soon. It's never no, too soon. Apparently <laughs> not. The type A section. <laughs> Consumerism at its best. And that voice you heard is our wonderful guest today. We're so pleased to welcome an esteemed college professor with a fine-tuned ear for how communication can either promote or hinder democracy. He is the author of seven books on topics ranging from strategies in public speaking to the ways that organizations and governments can better communicate with different stakeholders. After a career working in media, politics, and the performing arts, he has used his experience to teach the next generation at three different colleges and universities in New York City, Baruch College, part of the City University of New York System, Columbia University, and New York University. He's also the founder of Communication Upward, a company that facilitates communication workshops covering skills that can be immediately implemented by professionals. Yes, and when he's not busy teaching, writing, or running his company, he also performs stand-up comedy and improv. We are very pleased to welcome Dr. Don Weissenden. Paul, Steve, thanks so much for having me. Uh, looking forward to this conversation. Awesome. Thank you very much. And uh, we'll, we'll start by asking you a few questions related to politics, as I know we're in a a very uh, you know hot button environment and and time period with elections coming up and uh, wanted to ask you your take on this because it seems like more often than not at least from our perspectives uh, politicians nowadays can regularly come across as tone deaf or just <laughs> not in tune with what us commoners are having to deal with what are they doing wrong Don how can they bring humor into their approach to be to be more approachable. Oh, it's so needed. I I love that you were both using the word unflappable earlier, because honestly, I think I wonder if they need to be more flappable, right? They they don't improvise well. I think that's the core of it. And by improvising well, I don't mean winging it, because there's plenty of politicians willing to just wing it and go off the cuff and be completely unscripted. I think it is what folks like Bernard and Short have said, uh, observing, connecting and responding to others at a heightened level, at really thinking about what it takes to connect with people well and improvise well. That's the version of improv that uh, I think we need. So many many politicians are just too scripted and they get up and they speak and they do media conferences and they want all the variables to be controlled. And I know both of you have had experience with with stand-up, right? 
And stand-up comedians, right, the fundamental thing there is to be able to let go at any moment if the script is not working, right? right? I remember being in the Laugh Factory in Los Angeles once watching a comedian, and they were uh, going through their set, and all of a sudden, one of the waiters dropped a beer bottle, and that's all everybody's attention was focused mm -hmm. on. And instead of really seeing what was happening in the room, seeing people's gut level emotional reactions to what was happening, they kept going with their jokes, uh, right? Yeah, and I think yeah. that's there's a parallel with the political environment now that overly scripted, sometimes monotonous, repetitive communication, and just not enough structured spontaneity. Yeah, that's a great. Excuse me, that's a great point, Don. And obviously, that's that's what we comedians say, uh, being in the moment and reading the room. And that comedian failed miserably in both instances. I wanted to talk uh, or turn rather to to politics. We've already been talking about politicians. I I am whipping through a Doris Kearns Goodwin book called Leadership in Turbulent Times. Hmm. And it's a phenomenal anecdote about Abe Lincoln. Uh, when he first presents the Emancipation Proclamation to the cabinet, and there is widespread horror that he would think about doing this when they're losing one battle after another. And John Hay, his personal secretary, who wrote a biography about Lincoln, said Lincoln used an anecdote, a really funny anecdote to cut the tension in the room. Everybody laughed. He went back to the emancipation and he got the support he needed. Who, looking back, since the current crop are woefully inadequate, <laughs> looking, looking back at, at past politicians, who are among your favorites in terms of being in the moment, being able to improv and, and use all of the authenticity, vulnerability, empathy that comedians know that clearly today's politicians do not? Yeah, I think Lincoln, just to go there for a moment, was in a class of his own during that time period. I think we should talk about time periods with this because I think it's very aligned with there's been changes in recent decades. So, I mean, the Lincoln-Douglas debates used to be hours. Lincoln and Douglas to stand up. And from my readings of what happened, that people would come to these debates and just they would have rapt attention to it. It was just it's like binge watching Netflix or something. Right. But yeah, they were they were meant to inform, be entertaining and persuade all at the same time. And it seems like a lot of political communication now is just, you know, informing, definitely trying to persuade. But we've lost that human that that entertainment that's that says, hey, we're all human beings. Let's let's poke fun at ourselves as well as others. I would actually jump forward. I think that the big I think you mentioned Nixon there, uh, the big divide, and I actually have research on this, that the big divide was with Nixon going on laughing in 1968 and saying, sock it to me. He did not want to do that. His advisors he had some PR professionals there to advise and say, this might actually open up people seeing another side of you, right? And that that's all very debatable, I think. But it opened up this new era of uh, just saying that, you know, sort of politicians could poke fun at others, poke fun at themselves, especially especially that latter, that latter one. I'm going to get bipartisan with this. Right? I, I think that Reagan and Clinton are actually real markers in terms of past politicians. Reagan, I, I love it after, none of people know this, but after he gave that evil empire speech about Russia, walked into the White House Correspondents' Dinner uh, speech just after that, looked at the crowd and said, uh, by the looks of this audience, I should probably put away my evangelical speech, you know, and and just always, nice he stuff. always opened, his, Reagan always had openings like that just to try to create 
some people say yeah, it was like a velvet weapon just to really create some some tone to the situation. Well, well a, a former actor, right? So obviously, you know, maybe using some of that in his repertoire. Absolutely. He he used that performance orientation to to work the crowd quite a bit. And there was just a lot of self-deprecating jokes. And, you know, then he used in debates. Uh, he I think he really took up the mantle of Lincoln in a way and saying, you know, I'm not going to comment on my opponent's youth and inexperience during a debate and shifting things that way. But here's where this is directly relevant to PR. These uh, kinds of speeches and this kind of humor, I would argue, started to get used as a crisis communication tool. And this really ratcheted up uh, post-Nixon. Uh, they started to understand. You can see it seep into speeches and writings and all kinds of things. And I think Clinton was a real marker as well as Reagan on this, where uh, you know Clinton had a joke about, it was directly in the aftermath of the Lewinsky scandal saying, you know, uh, it was like, there was a published list in the museum of top 100 events of last year, and I came in number 53. What does a guy have to do to, to get ahead of the invention of plastic or something like that? So yeah. it was just, yeah. you know, uh, this, we can argue about the merits of the jokes, but uh, it really got kicked up to, this is something that can serve you as a strategic communication tool. And I think Reagan and Clinton were real markers with that. Absolutely. That's some some great names there. And, uh, you know, obviously, in hindsight, you could see some of the, the effectiveness of their of their comedy. I mentioned earlier that there's just not a lot of folks who are doing that as much today, at least that, from my perspective. Right. And this is a, a critical week, actually, that we're speaking to you, Don, because this is going to be the first debate this week uh, for this slew of Republican candidates that are in the running for next year's presidential election. Notably absent is uh, is Donald Trump. I think he's he said he's going to Georgia to get arrested this week. And so I guess we're gonna deal with that but he's, he's got a very busy schedule he's a little busy so he won't be in the debate but we will see his former vp mike pence the always polarizing florida governor ron DeSantis, former south carolina governor nikki haley just to name a few and i wanted to ask you don out of all these candidates which do you think will rise to the top not so much in terms of their poll numbers but more so in their use of humor and levity to kind of break that ice any of these candidates at all from that group that you think pack a surprising funny bone or we'll be surprised to hear uh, in the next few months. I, I have a very disappointing answer for okay. you and the, the crowd listening to this. None of them. Oh, I, oh. I can't believe I'm saying that. I cannot yeah. believe I'm saying that, but none of them, hmm. except Trump if he was a part of it, and yet his shtick is as an insult comic, right? right. That's really right. what he took up, and there's no self-deprecation. And I think he actually has really framed the way humor has been used since... 2016 uh, yeah. on the Republican side. There's a, a writer called Kenneth Burke that said, in a comic frame, you see others as mistaken, but not evil. And that's the essence of comedy, is that we recognize their shared humanity. And I think it's completely flipped with the candidates and crowd running that they've taken on a tone of, no, Others, when we make fun of them, are evil, not mistaken, right? Yeah. And so yeah. that space for unity has been really stripped out. So, yeah, tr Trump, if he was there, but I, I think we're at a we're at a historical moment where I I just don't see it happening. It's it's like they're being trained to be humorless. The candidates are everything is just interesting. Yeah. Gravity and seriousness, and it's you know, there's serious public issues always to deal with, but where's that space for, there's human beings here. Let's, let's connect with each other a little bit, right? 
I was just watching, have you, either of you ever seen Chris Farley do the impersonation of Newt Gingrich? This goes back some 30 years ago. Oh, I he think went, I remember that. Yes. <laughs> yeah. Went into yeah. Congress and impersonated Newt Gingrich and got up in front of Gingrich and acted as him and, you know, in front of the whole crowd was like, okay, we're going to push through HR 262549. Uh, get rid of term limits. All in favor. I, I don't care. I, you know, just like <laughs> doing this whole 10 minute spiel. I was trying to imagine, I was watching that the other day. Where, where's the equivalent of that right now? I, I haven't seen anything like that. So I don't know. I, do you both have an opinion on this? I'd love to know. Yeah, who, I, who I, 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 I actually think, <clears throat> excuse me, the only self-aware Republican who can be self-deprecating is Chris Christie. Mm. Yeah. I don't particularly care for him, but he is not averse to saying, yeah, I, I mucked that up. I, I that was a big mistake. I learned a lot. And the guy that I supported, Donald Trump, was not the guy who he turned out to be. So, right. you know, I mean, so 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 I I would not vote for Christie, but I do think amongst the Republicans, he possesses some sort of minor funny bone. Yeah, I'd agree with that. I think you're right. So two things. Yeah. I don't know if you read a recent article in The Atlantic about the rise of meanness and mean mm -hmm. people mm -hmm. and all sorts of really sobering statistics about how mean we have become to each other. And I know in your book, Improv for Democracy, you talk about how improv-based methods can help bridge differences between citizens and encourage a better form of civil discourse. So, you know, um, the Atlantic article, article talks about how mean we've all become to each other. Can you just tell us a little bit about how you in your book, and obviously you've written six others, but how can how can your um, tips, tidbits, advice, et cetera, help all of us in this era of meanness and 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 put down humor and 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 really nasty commentary? How how can we redirect and refocus that that discussion? Yeah, people pretend that politics is this rational intellectual exercise. And there, it's especially well known from research and persuasion that we think we are rational, but others are emotional. And that's just a way of obfuscating that, uh, you know, it's trying to gloss over our own emotional commitments, right? I think that we've, we've put too much emphasis on ideology when it comes to training for democracy, ed educating for to become cit good citizens. Um, what about human physiology? Meanness, that's deeply emotional. That sounds like a deeply physiological thing, right? If we're mean to each other, that's not just coming from the head, that's coming from emotions, from the body, from behaviors. So I think our education around this stuff has to meet people where they're at. When we talk about politics, it's not just rational. Improv is a methodology for teaching people how to operate at the cognitive, behavioral, and affective levels, emotional thinking, behavior. And so one of the reasons I wrote this book was that we all have default settings, right? We have default settings, we're all strung in certain ways. And for democracy to work well, we have to move outside of our default settings. We have to open space for communication with others. Improv exercises teach us to do that, right? And I also I think it's probably better seen than just talked about here. Do you want to do a quick exercise with me? Yeah, let's do it. Let's do it. Okay, this let's is a very well-known yeah. one from the improv world, but for those unfamiliar with this, this is called last word, first word, right? Sure. So uh, in this, you, you, we're going to have a conversation. Who knows what we'll talk about? But your last word must be first word in my sentence. Last yep. word in my sentence must be your first word. Okay, so here we go. So Steve, how are you doing today? 
Today is the uh, best day of the week so far for me, Don. Don is often what I'm called, but I'd prefer to be called Donald. Paul? Donald Duck was probably one of my favorite characters growing up in the cartoon world. Steve? Uh, World Be Free was my (laughs) all-time favorite XFL football player. Player. (laughs) What a player. (laughs) I also loved that player. Uh, Player was the second word of the movie Ready Player One that I saw that I really enjoyed. Enjoyed is a word that is not used enough in today's world. (laughs) World. We're back at that again. (laughs) (laughs) And we'll just end it there. I see the conversation. It can be a little awkward, whatever. But what it forces us to do is to actually listen right through to the end of what the other person's saying, which people don't often do when we're talking and communicating with, with each other, right? So I say to people, we often, there's listening to hear and there's listening to understand. Here, we're much more in that mode of being focused on the other person. We're moving beyond our default settings, which might just be, oh, I can't wait for that other person to stop talking and then slam them with some preordained opinion in my head, right? And all improv exercises force us to do something like this, right? I have another exercise that's just, for instance, it's common in the improv world, uh, we can only speak three words at a time, right? Mm-hmm. And you see people who really struggle with nonverbal communication start to open up a bit when they're forced to only <laughs> use three words or really make their words count. So um, this idea of moving beyond fixed perspectives, which is happening a lot in the political world, improv, I think, is a great way of training us out of that to consider multiple ways of being, multiple stories, generating multiple interpretations simultaneously. Uh, That's talked about in fields like adaptive leadership, for instance. It helps us accomplish a lot of that. So I see it as one way of of moving forward with democratic training. Yeah, and it's a great great way to address some of those um, challenges that people face and some of the fears that they have when it comes to either public speaking or engaging in that kind of civic discourse. And uh, Don, as as a college professor, I'm sure you're teaching these methods to many of your students. And I wanted to ask you if, if there was anything that you feel like most of your students struggle with um, that you would counsel or address to this to this rising generation to um, uh, to address with some of these tactics. I mean, what would it be? What what would be the one thing that you would uh, you would recommend that hey, this is something that you should focus on uh, for the majority of uh, folks who are you know in the rising generation? Yeah, the by far the biggest thing I ask the question in classes: What is your relationship with predictability? Mm-hmm. And I think this brings us full circle to where we started today. I see a lot of students who or people in training with this, that they want to hold on to their scripts, they want to read, they want to memorize, which is really actually just another way of being scripted, right? I I can't, nothing can deviate from my plans here. And I say, if you look at the really great speakers, they not only planned what they were going to say, they've got solid planning. And I think 90% of a great public speech is solid planning, what goes where and right. But at the same time, just at any moment, being ready to improvise a little bit to show some spontaneity, and people that for, for people that that really registers as authenticity at the end of the day that we we recognize when someone isn't purely scripted. So that's why I tell folks go take an improv class as well as a public speaking class. They should go together, you know, peel off those layers of inhibition just a little bit so you can get more connected with the crowd. Yeah, that's obviously spot on, Don, because. The best comedians memorize, memorize what they're going to say so that they know exactly, you know, how to enunciate, how to pace. But 
they also, because they have memorized it, are able to react instinctively to what happens in the room, i.e. somebody dropping a bottle of beer and smashing it on the ground and, and embracing that, acknowledging it, and then going back to whatever his or her, you know, bit is. I, I completely agree. And the amazing thing, I think, with with comedians operating, I mean, stand-up is like the haiku of comedy, right? It's really structured, and people don't often think about it that way, but I once heard a comedian say that they didn't know if something worked, truly worked, unless they gave the joke three Saturday nights in a row at like headlining clubs. Then they would know because, and I think that reinforces this predictability thing. They couldn't start to predict and project if it would work unless they had worked it out with crowds where all the variables are all over the place. You just cannot predict what's going to happen. So even there, they have to be highly open to unpredictability in order to get to that, those great nuggets of jokes that we end up seeing in an HBO special, for instance. Yes, and as you know, um, a comedian will labor long and hard just to change one word or one sentence and test it out three times because sometimes it's just changing one word that will transform what had been a mediocre punchline into a world-class one. And that's what comedians are so adept at. and business people, politicians, you name it, um, just don't ha just don't have that skill. That's right. I know. And maybe we should send them all to stand up camp. Maybe that should <laughs> be a requirement for becoming a politician. Are you going to go through stand up training? Not about the stand up. It's about the lessons you'll learn <laughs> and how to work with communication. Yeah, I would agree. Yes. But I'm, I would also want to send them to Gitmo. I don't know which would come first. <laughs> but, yeah. Maybe. Yeah. You just stand up at Gitmo. Why not? So final question, which is always our favorite, Don. Um, looking back, um, and it could be yesterday or it could be 20 years ago, was there a particularly cringeworthy moment that at the time you were, oh, man, I cannot believe I just said or did that. But you can look back on it now and just laugh out loud whenever you think of it. Yeah, most of my professional oopsies have come from improv, actually, because it's so unpredictable. I mean, I've, I've been in situation, I've done team building improv sessions with, remember at a Catholic school where a priest came in and gave a 10 minute prayer before we started. Hey, we're gonna have fun, do improv. Oh, that was really fun. Um, I've shown up at events where, you know, you ask for, uh, you say, you know, nobody should ever, this should be after dinner, we're gonna do an improv performance and then it's during dinner and it's all clanking of plates and everything and nobody can hear you and half the crowd, crowd is around the side of the building and I've had all kinds of things like that. But um, one that I think most comes to mind is I walked in, I think it was the second time I ever taught a public speaking class and I, I walked in and I said, welcome to public peaking. And <laughs> it took me a moment and then I went, well, clearly I need this just as badly as you do. Nice. <laughs> so we're nice. all in an even place here. Now we can really do the work. Brilliant. That is absolutely, I love that. A little you know, switcheroo I, there. <laughs> yeah, and again, the, the power of self-deprecating humor cannot be underestimated. So you are being willing to make fun of yourself and to have the audience laugh with you is so intrinsically important to leadership, in my opinion. It is. And and the, I think the, the amazing thing is that we determine what the response is in a way too after that, right? So it was response like Jay Leno. He, anytime a joke would fail, he'd always have a follow-up, but it was to frame it positively. Oh, take that back to the writer's room. So we tell people how to feel about whatever just happened. And there's a great writer, Scott Birkin says, if we 
if we respond to it like it's the sinking of the Titanic, the crowd has to feel that way. But if it's a fun, playful moment and we all make mistakes, then that's what it is. You tell them how to feel. Perfect. Love that. And we'd like to thank you again, Dr. Don Weissen and, uh, from Baruch College for joining us today. You've imparted some great words of wisdom. Uh, really appreciate your time and uh, hope to have you back one time. Maybe we can talk again after the elections and see uh, if anybody surprised you, you know, because obviously they haven't uh, so far from this from this group, right? That be interesting to see what happens once the election comes around. Would love to. We could do a post-election analysis of that. 100%. Well, thank you again, Dr. Don Weissenden. And uh, thank you, everyone, for tuning in to the Laughing Matters podcast. We'll see you next time.